1: March into spring with this unbeatable deal from BreezeLine. Get reliable, fiber-powered 1-gig internet for $59.99 per month, plus a $150 gift card and price lock guarantee. This deal gets even better with a free modem, free installation, and free Wi-Fi your way home. Safeguard your network from cyber threats and manage user access for all connected devices with this amazing offer. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires May 6, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. Intriguing new developments in a story that has mystified Chicago for 40 years.
2: Investigators are ramping up their efforts to solve one of the most notorious unsolved cases in the US. In September 2022, right before we were about to publish our first story on the Tylenol murders, we got a call. There was a new development in the Tylenol case. So
3: Chicago Tribune reporter
1: Christopher Kowsky and Stacy
2: St. Clair is one of the Tribune's reporters. Investigators flew to Massachusetts to interview their main suspect.
1: A bit of an enigma. He's really the only known living person of interest.
2: James
4: Lewis. Law enforcement has told the prosecutors they have a chargeable,
2: circumstantial case. Authorities last spoke to James Lewis about a decade ago, after they raided his home. Back then, they collected papers and other items from his cluttered condo. Now, investigators offered to return one of his personal items, if Lewis would talk to them. He agreed. Multiple sources told us that Lewis talked, without a lawyer present, for hours, on tape at a holiday inn. For so long, investigators have centered their attention on Lewis— why were they still so certain it was him? After months of reporting, we learned their best evidence was collected in one place. A PowerPoint presentation. One that investigators hope will sway prosecutors to charge the case, before it's too late.
3: And now, renewed hope for the families of the seven victims that justice will be served.
4: I'm Christy Katowski. And I'm Stacey St. Clair. This is Unsealed, The Tylenol Murders. Episode 8, The PowerPoint. It's been 40 years since seven victims took poisoned Tylenol capsules and died unexpectedly. Forty years for their family and friends without answers to the most important questions. Who did this? And why? Investigators felt strongly that they had finally answered these questions and that now was the time to act.
2: So our law enforcement sources said there was a big parking lot that he to walk across to get to
4: this mall. While investigators were trying to get a prosecutor to charge Lewis, we flew to Boston to try and interview him ourselves. We headed to Cambridge, Massachusetts, where Lewis lives. Most of his regular haunts, we learned, were almost within sight of his home. We hadn't seen a recent photo of him so we didn't know exactly what he looked like. But we knew he was in his 70s, tall, with blue eyes. And that in recent years, he usually kept himself clean-shaven. It's Tuesday, um, June 21st. We are in a McDonald's parking lot right across the street from uh, Jim Lewis's house, his condo. Christy saw a man inside the nearby McDonald's who she thought might be Lewis. He was wearing a mask because of the pandemic. So we decided to go in to be sure. And they're opening the door to McDonald's. We were with our producer, Claire. I wonder if this will be James Lewis. Who watched as we walked inside. And And here they come. No luck.
5: The voice was totally different. The body type was different.
4: Back to the streets.
6: Who's
2: that guy? Oh, he's smoking. Jim? Are you Jim Lewis? No. There's an old man in there with a computer. Why are there so many old men in masks walking around these parking lots? It's going to drive us crazy.
4: After a few days in Cambridge, nothing. We also tried to reach him with an email, with text messages. We talked to his neighbors. We even tried to FaceTime him. Nada. On day three, we had to make a move. So, Christy and I are going to leave our posts now and just knock on Jim Lewis's door. Lewis's block was full of beeping construction trucks doing road work. We walked up to his building, a brick structure across from a large parking lot for a shopping plaza. Should I hit it again? His condo is on the first floor with a small cement patio surrounded by a privacy fence. We buzzed twice, no answer. Then a neighbor let us in. We walked down a carpeted, dimly lit hallway to his door. We knocked twice. Each time, we heard a high-pitched beep. It seemed like a security camera taking pictures. I'm just going to leave this letter. Let's go. We left. Hopefully he'll call. And we went back to Chicago. We waited for a call or email from Lewis. Two months passed. It was now August. We were running out of time. So Christy went back to Cambridge with a photographer from the Tribune to try again. I stayed home to chase leads. Stacy.
5: Yes. Okay. We just what found, happened? We just, we just found Lewis. Mr. Lewis? That's him. Hi. Don't run. I'm going to hurt you. I was positioned in the front of the building and our photographer Stacy West out, called and said, this man had a full
2: beard and kind of really gray, I wouldn't say wild hair, but it's it's a. It's, this wasn't what we pictured. He had like Ice. a key chain around his neck with a fob on it and tons of keys. I hightailed it about three blocks. I got back there, and he was stopped. And I, the minute I saw him, I knew it was him. Lewis was talking to a man sitting on a bench. When I called out his name, Lewis started to walk quickly in the opposite direction.
6: You're not We're not going to hurt you. Get away from me.
5: Mr. Lewis, you used to like to talk to the Chicago Tribune. Why are you so quiet now? Everyone else is talking. Typhainer. We'd she like to present our it. findings to you. Do you have my card? I'm Christy Katowski. I left She's it for you letters. in June. We'll just walk with you for a minute. We're not your enemy. But if you want to say anything at all, and I then we'll leave over. you... But you used to talk to the Tribune. So I we... did.
6: That was a long time ago. Forty years ago.
5: I know. Forty years. Why did you stop talking, may I ask? It just seems like you're hiding and... I don't want to, if we've got everyone else talking in our Do I look
6: like I'm hiding? You didn't have any trouble finding me?
5: Well, we did. We were here in June, we didn't find you, and so then we came back one more time. You do have my information if you want to reach me, right?
2: If you ever want to say anything?
6: I'm not going to talk with you. Okay.
2: But then, Lewis did say something.
6: We'll down you this story about the, uh, J&J's destruction of the, all the evidence. Shipped them to shipped them back to
2: the He was talking about the fact that in 1982, Johnson and Johnson, not law enforcement, tested about ten million capsules for cyanide.
6: Several million capsules.
2: Company employees discovered one tainted bottle that they turned over to authorities. Some people have questioned the decision to give Johnson and Johnson a role in the investigation. Remember, this is the same time that investigators are looking to see if there's a disgruntled employee who is behind the poisonings. But law enforcement officials we spoke to praised the company for its cooperation.
6: We obviously haven't interviewed them.
5: We interviewed the former chairman of McNeil, and they said that's after they tested all of the capsules, they, they burned them. But the police told, told people to flush the- them down the toilet, so evidence was definitely destroyed. We asked Roy Lane how much of your website was accurate about the undercover operation. He said about 50%. It
6: was absolutely. Slow down, sir. Very carefully. 100% correct.
5: I just don't understand how he got you to believe that he was trying to help you. Can you explain to us what his ruse was? Do you have any theories on who is the Tylenol killer?
6: I think that's fairly obvious.
5: Not to me. Who do you think it is? Is there anything at all you want to say,
6: ladies? I hope I've not been too too rude to you. After 40 years of this stuff, what have you? What have you? Have you been? For 40 years, what's happened to you? You've been harassed over something for 40 years, you didn't have anything to do with
5: it? You once told a Tribune reporter, to the day you die, you'll regret writing that letter. Do you still feel that way?
6: You're not going to answer the question, so as politely as I can, bye-bye.
2: After trying to engage with him for a few short blocks, we watched as he continued west down Cambridge Street and got into a zip car. It wasn't an ideal situation, but it was something. He was clearly unhappy having his photograph taken. He had managed to avoid the cameras, as far as we could tell, since being on his friend Roger Nicholson's public access show a dozen years ago. He denied being the Tylenol killer as he offered his own theory.
4: Back in Chicago, investigators collected the main points of their case in the PowerPoint presentation. It includes the most significant evidence that investigators say they have on James Lewis, the material that they think points to him as the Tylenol killer. The version we last saw is almost 50 pages long. It includes pictures of Lewis's letters, of his poison handbook, and more. The task force showed it to prosecutors in 2012, but they didn't file charges. And over the last decade, investigators have updated it. They tested old evidence using the latest advances in DNA technology. Now, in 2022, they are again pursuing charges against
2: Lewis. But how strong was their case? The only way to find out was to get our hands on that PowerPoint. There was only one problem. The Tylenol murders is still an open case. The FBI was blocking us at every turn. Our sources told us the FBI was telling agents not to talk to us at all, let alone about the PowerPoint. So we leaned on confidential sources. People whose names we couldn't publish and who we couldn't record. We met with sources over the course of six months in public places like restaurants and coffee shops in the city and the suburbs we always chose a table out of earshot one day a source finally showed us the powerpoint then a second showed it to us too we couldn't have a copy ourselves but we took a ton of notes and then we saw it a third time to confirm those notes
4: she go through the notes like
2: page by page or you want to talk about like what
4: we got on record what we thought was the most
2: important. Important. After one of these meetings, we sat in my car and we compared what we saw. So, how long were we there? It was like three hours? Three hours. I mean, like the there are dozens of slides, each outlining a piece of evidence. Some of it will be familiar to you, all of it lays out investigators' top 10 points, their full case against James Lewis. So I think I'm going to start with the letter. Point one, the letters. Specifically, the extortion letter and the letter to President Ronald Reagan. Investigators interpreted both as confessions. Point two, the aliases. Lewis had at least a dozen or so. Court records show he also traveled under fake names. So we know more about what these five jailhouse snitches, exactly what they said. Point three, the inmates. Authorities say Lewis made incriminating statements about the Tylenol murders to five fellow inmates at multiple facilities in multiple states. None of these conversations were recorded. Points four, five, and six are all about cyanide. Investigators say Lewis had extensive knowledge of cyanide in the pharmaceutical industry. Business records show Lewis was trying to get a company off the ground exporting pill press machines to developing countries. We got more details about the fingerprints on the book There's also the poison handbook. Six fingerprints and one impression from James Lewis. Lewis's fingerprint was on page 196, the page that listed the fatal dose of potassium cyanide, the kind used in the murders. Investigators also said that Lewis at one point had cyanide in his possession. A clear, round container with a screw-on cap, which contained a white, powdery substance. We found no concrete evidence that Lewis ever had any cyanide. Point 7. The drawings that Lewis made back in 1983, like the breadboard method, which showed how someone might have tainted the capsules. Point eight. The FBI talked to a world-renowned toxicologist during the Task Force II era, who said that the methods in the drawings looked feasible to him. He told us he would testify to this in court. Let's step back here for a
4: second. These eight points included much of the material we had already discovered during our own reporting. But a few of the points were new to us. Specifically, the last two. One of them offered an explanation as to why investigators thought the murders were committed. A motive. Something law enforcement had been searching for since 1982. The other point wasn't a smoking gun, but investigators thought it was pretty close. So first, the motive. Point nine.
2: The autopsy for Tony. Yeah, the autopsy
4: for Tony. We heard sources mention this before. And now we had the evidence that authorities had collected. It was about Tony. Tony. Lewis's daughter, who died when she was five. She had a heart operation in 1974, about a month before she passed away. Doctors performed an autopsy, which is not uncommon when a child dies.
2: Where was this report? The doctors, Keith W. Ashcroft.
4: The autopsy found that the sutures doctors used to repair Tony's heart had torn. According to FBI records the sutures were sold under the brand name Proline. Proline was trademarked five years earlier by a company with a name that's familiar to all of us by now, Johnson & Johnson. With Lewis's history of revenge, investigators thought he might have wanted to target the company that was involved in some way with his daughter's health care. The theory was, by poisoning their capsules, Lewis would be getting back at Johnson & Johnson. For the first time, investigators had what they considered a strong motive for the Tylenol murders. They had explored other motives. Like revenge against lakeside owner Fred McKahie and greed in trying to extort a million dollars from J&J. They even considered the possible motive of wiping out competition for Lewis's pill press business that never really got off the ground. But to investigators, none of these motives seemed as compelling as Tony. Lewis likely would have had access to her autopsy report. Even though he has posted multiple rants on his website about J&J for the past decade, the evidence doesn't confirm that Lewis made this connection to Tony before the murders. Over the years, the FBI was hard-pressed to find someone who knew Lewis and thought this was a valid motive. But investigators held on to it. There's one last point to get to, beyond emotive. The FBI had something on video, something big.
0: At KPMG, our people make the difference. It's not just something we say, it's what we do. Combining the power of people and technology, we uncover brighter insights, innovate bolder solutions, and create better data-driven outcomes. KPMG, make the difference. Imagine you're at an exclusive party. Across the crowded room, you spot the most stunning man. You spit-take your champagne. He keeps approaching, and then he says... Your red light therapy session is now complete. What just happened? You found your escape at Palm Beach Tan. Break from the chaos at a Palm Beach Tan near you and leave rejuvenated. Take time for yourself at Palm Beach Tan and take that feeling with you wherever you go. New red light therapy now available. Featuring Australian gold. Hot guy not included.
2: Finally, the last point. Let's talk about this three days thing. Point 10. The Sting. So it was during the undercover operation. We talked a lot about this already. This is the operation where Lewis was helping research a fake book. The research took him to Chicago, where there were two main revelations. There's undercover video of both. Supposedly they have thousands or hundreds of hours of tape. The first one stunned us when we saw the footage. The other we did not see, but we confirmed the details with a half-dozen people who have seen it. The first main revelation happened at the Walgreens at North and Wells, where Paula Prince bought her tainted Tylenol in 1982. It was 2007, in Chicago's Old Town neighborhood. The FBI took Lewis inside the store for so-called research. While they were inside, sources told us that Lewis walked to a back wall where they kept the Tylenol in 1982. But the store didn't keep it there anymore. And sources told us that after they left the store, Lewis had a reaction. He said it was like deja vu, and that he hadn't felt this sense of excitement since he met his biological mother. We just saw undercover video of the man they think is the Tylenol killer. And basically, they're catching him on video in either a lie or in, you know, admitting that he's. This is the other part of point 10, the second revelation. The video from the sting that we did see. We were able to actually watch it, Mm -hmm. hear his own words, the Mm -hmm. video. Investigators say this video is one of the most compelling pieces of evidence that they have on Lewis. That was pretty powerful. It's extremely rare to see undercover video from the FBI before a case has been charged. But we saw this one. We watched it twice and took a ton of notes. The footage is grainy. Lewis is in a suite At the Sheridan Grand Hotel in downtown Chicago. Agent Roy Lane Jr. is there.
4: Roy Lane is dressed super casually, like maybe even like a pair of jeans. They're sitting on a couch in a hotel room. Jim Lewis has some kind of like, he's wearing a crossbody bag.
2: Off camera, in a room next door, there are several investigators and behavioral analysts from the FBI listening in with eavesdropping equipment.
4: He says to Jim Lewis, like, there's a problem with your timeline, and and we're trying to work it out.
2: They're talking about the timeline Lewis provided to the FBI about the extortion letter.
4: You said that you spent three days on the extortion letter. And he was like, quote, at least three days I was working on it.
2: The extortion letter arrived at Johnson & Johnson on October 5th, but at the time, prosecutors didn't know the exact date that he sent it. The postmark was not legible. But in the years since, technology advanced. And by 2007, the FBI could finally see the postmark date. Friday, October 1st, 1982. In the video, Lewis does not dispute that he sent the letter on October 1st. He asks Lane what day the killings happened. Lane picks up a manila folder. He sketches out a calendar and shows it to Lewis. Agent Lane calmly counts back three days from Friday, October 1st. He lands on Wednesday, September 29th, the day all seven victims swallowed their poison pills. Lane says, You would have written this letter the same day that people were dying. Lewis is quiet. He hugs the messenger bag to his chest. And he's like, I see your quandary. I've been telling myself for 25 years I worked on it for three days, but it's impossible. If Lewis worked on it for three days, like he said, he would have been working on it Wednesday, September 29th the same day that people were dying. Only, it wasn't national news that day. The first reports didn't come out until the next day, Thursday, September 30th. According to Lane, Lewis told him he first heard about the killings from a New York Times article, Friday, October 1st.
3: The article was in the afternoon edition that came out on October 1st
2: and investigators now knew Lewis sent the letter on October 1st. That would have left less than one full day to research, write the letter, and drop it in the mail. So there's two timelines at work. The three days thing is problematic. But even if it's true that Lewis misremembered like he said, the adjusted timeline would have been difficult to pull off.
3: He had to go to the library many times. Uh, he had to Uh, look up what cyanide would do, how long it would take to kill somebody, Uh, Johnson & Johnson's address. Uh, You'd have to learn a little bit about the capsules are gelatin.
2: It's technically doable, but not easy.
3: So there was some research that went into it.
4: Roger Nicholson, Lewis's friend in Cambridge, echoed what Lane said. He was very calculated. He wrote it six times.
3: So we've got a timeline there that is... Um, to do all the research and then to write the letter, uh, you you don't have very much time.
4: In the video, Lewis
2: says, I see your quandary. Uh, That didn't happen. Faulty memory. He shakes his
4: head and appears nervous. Lewis says that given the timeline Lane just pointed out, it's impossible that it took him three days to write the extortion letter. He says, quote, under oath, I would have sworn to it. If Lewis was potentially writing the letter before the murders, the only way he could have done that, investigators thought, was if he was the Tylenol killer. We were told Lewis didn't know he was being secretly taped. We asked him about the sting and wrote to him multiple times about it. We didn't hear back. He has attacked the FBI for the sting, though, Lane in particular. Lewis wrote on his website that the whole thing was an expensive attempt at scapegoating him for the Tylenol murders. As for the video, that's the end of the portion we saw. The evidence in the video was circumstantial, but investigators saw it as damning. And if someone was finally going to be held accountable for this crime, there were only two prosecutors who could file charges. The state's attorneys in DuPage and Cook counties. Two of the victims had died in DuPage, Mary McFarlane and Mary Lynn Reiner. And five had died in Cook County, Paula Prince, Mary Kellerman, and Adam, Stanley, and Teresa Janis. Any prosecutor weighing whether or not to take the case would probably ask themselves, if this case went to trial, would a jury convict? Multiple on-the-record and confidential sources we spoke with thought the case was a strong one. And as recently as summer 2022, investigators met with prosecutors.
2: So what did the source call it? They called it
4: a, a chargeable, circumstantial case. To push the state's attorneys to pursue charges. Prosecutors were listening. The question is whether they would bite. We know from the PowerPoint what investigators have on Lewis. And what they don't. They still can't place Lewis in Chicago during the murders. And they still have no direct physical evidence tying him to the killings. No DNA, no surveillance video, no witnesses who can place him in Chicago during the crucial dates. Plus, there's still the issue of Roger Arnold. Any defense attorney would jump on the following facts. Arnold admitted to law enforcement that he had cyanide. As far as we know, Lewis never has. Arnold had a connection to one of the victims. Lewis does not. And Arnold was in Chicago at the time. Investigators can't place Lewis there. If a case was ever brought against Lewis, or anyone else, this is exactly where Chicago police detective Charlie Ford would have fit in. Do you think this will ever be solved?
3: Uh, because I should no. No.
4: He went to his grave, still believing the killer was very likely Arnold.
3: Well, unless you get on a Ouija board and have Arnold give a, a confession from the grave, there's no way you can uh, solve this one.
4: In any potential case against another suspect, Ford likely would have been called as a witness for the defense to testify why he thought Arnold was the killer. But now, Ford is gone.
1: It's almost like a football game. Uh, The clock runs out.
4: And investigators understand that it's only a matter of time before other witnesses fall away, too.
1: You lose witnesses. You, You might have interviewed somebody 40 years ago that saw a critical piece of evidence that either is not available today because they've passed away or is enfeebled.
4: Special Agent Robert Grant was in charge of the Chicago FBI office. During the Task Force 2 era, he oversaw the team that created the PowerPoint. And now he wants something to be done before time runs out.
1: You have to put it up in the public and you have to let a jury see the evidence and let them decide whether you've made the case.
4: Sam Adam Jr. has a different view
1: the jurors are regular people.
4: He's a criminal defense attorney in Chicago who has represented high-profile clients like R. Kelly and Rod Bogoyevich. He understands how juries think.
3: And regular people take a look at circumstances and go, what are the odds? No, no way.
4: Adam said that in a case like this, a jury might very well convict based on the circumstantial evidence alone. Especially if a judge allowed them to hear the allegations of violence in Lewis's
3: past. There's not a jury in the world, in my humble opinion, that's not going to think he did it.
4: The FBI has had decades to build up that circumstantial case. But Adam also said that the lack of direct physical evidence would still be a major sticking point for any prosecutor.
3: I'm not being grandiose, but as citizens, do we want our prosecutors charging anybody who they can't say was there at the scene or at the crime? That's a very difficult thing to agree to. That's the push and pull of this case.
2: The Tylenol murders investigation has been marked by swells in resources and attention. Years after the initial investigation, Roy Lane came out of retirement for the sting. Then, a few years later, investigators raided Lewis's home. A few years after that, task force members pushed their evidence in front of prosecutors. And now, in 2022, this well could be the last one, with investigators interviewing 76-year-old Lewis in Massachusetts. The chance to charge someone isn't now or never, but it is now or maybe never. As for the families who lost loved ones, that leaves them just about where they started 40 years ago, without a clear explanation of who did this and why.
5: Who would think that somebody would die from just taking a pill for a headache? I'm looking for closure here. You know, I can't I can't live in fear or I choose not to.
3: Even though some of the memories are kind of tough, I can't thank you all enough for helping me to remember somebody that I needed to remember.
0: Somebody really needs to pay
4: for these seven deaths and for all of the pain and agony that they caused the family and friends.
0: I would call the FBI every year on September 29th and said, have you caught him?
5: And, inevitably, no.
2: It comes back to something we heard from Joseph Janus, who lost two younger brothers and a sister-in-law in the killings.
3: I hope before I die I see somebody in the face who did that.
2: His parents died tortured by not knowing who killed their sons.
3: They almost, every day, they went on a cemetery. Well, my father was, he regret to come to this country.
4: As long as the case remains active, law enforcement can withhold a lot of its files from the public, including the victims' families. An active case can feel like a holding pattern. It's a wait-and-see that has been going on for 40 years. So now, it's time for closure. If, as investigators have told us, this is as good as the case is going to get, and if prosecutors still won't charge it, then maybe it's time to free the case from its holding pattern. Make more of the records available. It would be an ending without anyone held accountable for the deaths of these seven people. But it would be some kind of closure and a reflection of what we've tried to do here with our own investigation. To offer an end, finally, to the not knowing.
2: Unsealed, The Tylenol Murders, is executive produced by Will Malnati from At Will Media and Mitch Pugh From the Chicago Tribune In association with Audiochuck Produced by Claire Tai Jessica Glazer And Ann-Margaret Warner Edited by Morgan Springer Fact-checking assistance from Wu Dan Yan Production support from Molly Getman Matt Hickey Zach Rapone Andrew Holtzberger, And Seth Richardson Mixed by Daniel Churek Original music by Hannes Brown Reported by us, Christy Gutowski and Stacy Sinclair. The team from Atwell Media includes Jenny Barish Greg Devins II Rosie Guerin Harry Huggins Clementine Ford Melanie McKnight Brigand Snow Tina Turner Kate Walsh Gabriela Jacek, and Alexandra Zaslow. The team from the Chicago Tribune includes Jeff Carlson, Karen Flax, Phil Jurek, Amanda Kashubi, Robert Lorzel, Brian McQueen, Claire Mallon, Marianne Mather, Todd Panagopoulos, Ellen Prespasniak, Corey Rumor, Karen Tissue, Peter Tsai, Jason Wamskins, Stacy Westcott, Joy White, Michelle Williams, and Raquel Zaldivar. Special thanks to Sam Byard and Celera Workman from Davis Wright Tremaine, Talia Blake, Sean Gordon from Wintra Tobin, Amy Carr, Brian Clavey, and Crystal Recorders Studio. Austin Fast, KSCB Studio in Liberal, Kansas, Matt O'Connor, Skye Paley, Orrin Rosenbaum and Kristen Myers from United Talent Agency, Christina Shockley, Miranda Suarez, Eli Sugarman, and Eric Vondering. A very special thanks to the many journalists who have covered this case over the years, including Joy Bergman, who profiled James Lewis for the Chicago Reader in 2000, and our former Chicago Tribune colleague, Bill Mullen, who did a deep dive in the original Tylenol Task Force in 1983. This series was produced in loving memory of our team member, Fernando Feñete, who passed away during the production of this podcast.